Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Max. Live every weekday and noon and then up as a podcast, this is MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs. I've got 30 minutes of express news on developments here in South Africa, around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and top commentators. It's Wednesday, the 29th of November. Coming up, South Africa's jobs bloodbath. We'll talk to the chief executive officer of ArcelorMittal as it announces thousands of job cuts and the National Union of Mine Workers on its warning that the worst is still to come. Is South Africa's supply chain crisis now at disaster proportions? Tourism under threat at two major holiday centers amid fears of E. coli and crime. And ahead of World AIDS Day, a leading doctor on why we need to heed other killer diseases like diabetes. In a clear sign of desperation, the Road Freight Association says the private sector must take control of failing state-owned entities to save South Africa's supply chain. This comes on the back of twin crises at the Durban and Richards Bay ports. Welcome back now to MoneyWeb at Midday, the Chief Executive Officer of the Association, Gavin Kelly. And Gavin, at this stage, is it too soon to say a state of disaster exists in the national supply chain? No, that state of disaster has been around, I'd say, at least for two years, Jeremy, at least for two years. It just hasn't got to where everything now seems to have come to a head at the same time. So, you know, we struggled a bit with rail, and I say struggled a bit, but there was a bit of focus of there, but the ports were doing their things. They had challenges, but it, it wasn't big challenges. Now it's all come to a head. So now we find that the borders have a problem because what should traditionally be going through the ports by rail is now going by truck through through a a narrow gap across a river, for want of a better word. The, The railway lines that should be supporting the movement of goods, and it's not just down to the port itself. It's in between provinces and to major centers and to stockpiling points, for want of a better example, that's then put onto a larger railway line down to a port. They're all beginning to fail. And then, of course, the ports are just being absolutely dismal in in any sort of import or export activity. So it's all come together and we are now in a state of disaster. State of disaster and it seems like the proverbial uh, perfect storm. So, Gavin Kelly, can you wrap some numbers around this crisis for me, if you can, in terms of logjam, cost and loss to the economy? One of the easiest ones is the so-called Northern Bulk Line, which I think a lot of people generally refer to the Richards Bay Coal Line. That line was designed to take bulk ores, and it isn't just coal. There are various other bulks that go along there, like manganese or chrome or timber, wood chips, things like that. And uh, that line has an operating capacity of about 80 million tons a year. It probably could do more, but 80 million tons a year. And currently that line is operating at just under 40 million tons, about 39 million tons. So they're already, the other 40 million tons, where do they go? How do, so where do they go? How do they get to wherever they need to get to? 
Well, I mean, facetiously, you could put it on an aircraft, but it's all going by truck. Mm. So that's the first problem, is that now 40 million tons has to find its way down to a port or ports via truck. That cost is more than what a single load on a train would be, a train that's got 60, 70 wagons. And obviously, the diesel cost is more expensive than what the electricity cost would be, so we're led to believe. And then there's all the infrastructure management and repair and development. So there's a tonnage there for you. We hear various reports in terms of containers that are not moving through various ports. Now, there was focus for the last three weeks on the port of Durban and various figures that uh, went between 70,000 and about 23-odd thousand containers. We probably had about 25-odd thousand containers. That's import and export. But it's begun to spill over to, for example, Kabache or Kuche down in PE, that area. Cape Town has a problem. And we've just gone into the peak of the fruit season. So we're now we're trying to get refrigerated or cooled containers through the ports. So there are blocks there. And we're hearing there are figures like four to 9,000, depending on, on the week and, and what's happening in terms of sailings. The figures that are going around currently is that it's probably costing the country, if you take everything into consideration, you consider the penalties. So remember, Shipping is an international business. The guys who come and pick up or drop off containers here, we're en route. We are not the destination or the final destination, although some importers feel that way. So they have to go from us to somewhere else or on the way from somewhere else to drop something off. So there are international shipping lines that charge penalties. There are delay penalties within the various warehouses around South Africa and to the north of us. And the figures are that it's costing us roughly a billion rand a day in terms of everything that is not going the way it should go. Efficiencies that are not happening. Gavin Kelly, is anyone actually stepping up, doing something and taking responsibility? Well, as good South Africans, we have got together a crisis committee, which is called the National Logistics Crisis Committee which was driven by the president or is being driven by the president and the president has taken a keen interest in it. And this has come up with a number of solutions and plans and options, but we've done that before. There are also a number of statements around people being held accountable and where the problem originated and why it originated. But I have yet to see a very, very clear indication of what we're going to do and when we're going to do it, and who's going to be responsible. So there are plans, there are people talking, but I think it's going to be a long, long time, Jeremy, before we see any sort of action whatsoever. And if the current trajectory continues, what then? Well, if the current trajectory continues, in other words, nobody does anything and the private sector is kept out of this. And remember, private sector was about to get into rail. There were going to be these slots we could use and then Transnet withdrew from that. They have not gone any further with the Filipino terminal operation down in the port of Durban. So if the current trajectory continues, then we're in deep, deep, dark trouble. I was going to use another word because we we are just going to be laughed at. And the shipping lines, already one shipping line, says come pick up your containers in the Seychelles. And that's what shipping lines are going to do. They're going to say we can't come to South Africa because you guys just 
don't know how to do anything and don't want to do anything. Our businesses who export and import critical bits are going to close. They'll move to other countries and the rest of the world is just going to have a laugh at us. So we're going to go down a very slippery slope very quickly. Gavin Kelly, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Well, it couldn't come at a worse time with a month to go before Christmas, but thousands of employees might lose their jobs after ArcelorMittal South Africa announced that it's putting its major Newcastle and Ferenigheim long steel operations in care and maintenance due to a lack of demand. The chief executive officer of the company, Kubus Verster, is with us now. Mr. Verster, a very warm welcome, and this must be a very hard decision to make with the festive season looming. Yes, good afternoon, Jeremy. Now, obviously, I think uh, the timing for bad news is never ideal, uh, and this is a, a major event, uh, so obviously it's a very difficult decision. But we've taken this, I think, after we've considered all other options. What other options did you look at? I mean, we've been contemplating this for more than a, a few years now. So we've done, over the past years, some um, restructuring with that footprint changes, uh, we shut some of our plants. Um, so we've implemented a lot of actions to try and get the place to a break-even. But the external and the structural impediments are just too difficult to overcome. There's no possibility that the decision could be reversed or revisited if market conditions improve? Or do you think this decision is about as final as it gets? I think we're always open to see what can what can happen to change it. But the fundamentals here is uh, low economic growth and the result of that negative uh, movement in steel demand, national constraints around Transnet and Eskom, uh, scrap ban, uh, which give the competitors an advantage, and just overcapacity. So how do you change those variables in the short term? So I think that that's the complexity. And once you, once you stop an integrated steel mill and you lose or you get rid of the skills, uh, that's the complicated factor to bring back. You must be very disappointed in government because much of this is driven by promises that uh, there would be a more robust public infrastructure development program, which, let's be honest, hasn't happened at all. Yes, and the long product business is specifically more uh, geared towards a major infrastructure. You know, that we need the dams, the bridges, and those things that consume the long products business. Uh, products. So, uh, yes, I think uh, uh, on the issues I've just mentioned, uh, it's a sort of a perpetual un, uh, unhappiness by, by many people in the country. Kubis Verster, you're at the coalface of all of this. I, I want you to give us a sense of your optimism or pessimism as far as the trajectory of South Africa is concerned, given the supply chain issues that I've just been talking to the Road Freight Association about and uh, the situation that you find yourselves in. How desperate are we right now? I mean, we at really, I mean, if you look at steel, uh, demand has reduced by 20% over the last seven years. So we, we're consuming in South Africa a mere 4 million tons. We've got capacity of I mean, probably a bit over 8 to 9 million tons in the country. Uh, how do those things change? I think there might be in uh, the near term some small changes, but the fundamental switch, I can't see anything on the horizon, to be honest. Are we in a situation now where in this country we are at the brink of saying goodbye to the steel industry? I think uh, as many other industries, I mean, our, our remaining business is is a flat products business, high value products. 
uh, strong business, but one should be careful that the same uh, impediments is not impacting that business long term. But eventually, I think as private sector take over operations of uh, Transnet, uh, that will add a lot of uh, cost reductions and uh, disruption, uh, less disruptions in our business. I think the energy issue will most probably resolve itself over five to six years. Uh, so it's a bit of a long haul, um, but uh, government spent on infrastructure remains the, the issue. And I mean, where will the money come from? I think that's the, the question. All of those private sector interventions that you refer to, it's also a long game, isn't it? In the short term, it's not going to save the jobs of 3,500 people and the concomitant impact on the communities of Verenigung and Newcastle. No, I th- un- unfortunately, that's true. But we also have to be mindful and to an extent positive on how do we save what's less uh, left and how do we grow that. So I think that's where we we need to introduce a level of uh, positiveness and optimism uh, into our day-to-day operations and just try uh, through engagement with Transnet and all of these to make sure that we don't see major disasters in the short term. As far as the jobs losses are concerned, I'm correct in saying that a consultation process is now underway and you're looking for some sort of conclusion uh, end of January 2024? Yes, I mean, we will actually officially um, uh, start next week with a consultation process. That's normally a 60-day process, but I mean, we're in the silly seasons and uh, one can also assume this is not a, a small consultation, so uh, it may drag on a bit longer uh, due to complexity. Thank you very much for joining me, Kubus Verste of ArcelorMittal, uh, talking about uh, the outgoing uh, departure of as many as 3,500 people within the organization. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. All right, sounding loud jobs alarm, the National Union of Mine Workers believes the country could face major job losses in coming months. It says close to 10,000 jobs stand to be lost in coming weeks. Lupit Chilwani from the union joins us now on MoneyWeb at Midday. And first of all, these potential job losses that you're referring to, 10,000-odd in the mining sector, sudden or expected given the current economic and industrial climate that South Africa is experiencing right now? Our view on that is that we have actually uh, collected all this information after the announcement by Sibanya Steelwater, Anglo Platinum, Sireti, Glencore, Kumba Iron Ore to say that they are going to return to workers after they've serve uh, section 189a so it's really shocking we are very shocked and shattered by that we are very disappointed especially uh, the, the situation that is taking place or it's happening under the situation where the country is facing high unemployment rate this comes at the worst possible time end of the year doesn't it that is going to be very tough for mine workers uh, they are going to uh, celebrate the festive holidays with a heavy heart. So are there any specific actions that NUM is planning to take? Are you able to do anything? Look, I can confirm to you that the NUM is in, in a sitting with the, those mining companies. There are, there are processes of consultation and others. The NUM is part of that, where we are submitting our positions to say we're trying to minimize the situation or, if possible, to avert that to happen. 
Are you optimistic that there will be any outcome, positive outcome as a result of these talks? We are not the only stakeholders who are affected here. And we are actually at different trade unions. And also we are calling on the government to intervene so that the situation can be normalized. You know, this is a big number if you look at, especially we are saying for the next two months, it's going to be very, very hard. So we have invited the government to intervene to see if they cannot come with uh, positive proposals. What kind of proposals would you want government to present? You see, I'm just going to give you an example with the Sereti, Coal and Glencoe. What they are reasoning is that they are unable to transport their minerals to the market. So that has affected them uh, heavily. So the retrenchments that are happening there is because they are no longer getting profit because of the transportation and other things. So Transnet is it's a government entity. So government must actually see to it how to resolve that. Do you have any confidence in government in getting this right? Well, <laughs> you know, it's just an issue for them to, to, to be considerate on this matter. Because if uh, it's a government that cares, definitely they should jump into the ship. As far as being considered is concerned, you're also asking companies like Anglo-American and Sibanya uh, to be compassionate in engaging with the unions. Um, do you feel that that compassion is forthcoming? Well, we are saying that because uh, these are bigger companies. They've got uh, much experience most of the time. So they should actually think of the poverty that they are exposing those workers to. They should actually come up with some alternative. Instead of taking a retrenchment as a last resort, they must engage on other alternatives. Re-skilling the workers, re-empowering them. Yeah, that is, that is what we are, we are trying to present our case. But uh, reskilling and reprioritizing is also a long-term strategy, isn't it? The mine, mining companies, I guess, would turn around and say, uh, we have short-term concerns. Exactly. I agree with you. It's a, it's a long-term process, but that is the reason why we are saying they mustn't see a, a retrenchment as a last reason. Mm. We must engage on other things. We must talk about other things because we are looking at this as a, a serious problem. The poor workers always uh, remain on the receiving end, whatever way. So it's, it's really, really sad. And the loss of nearly 10,000 jobs, as you're suggesting, is going to impact negatively on an already high unemployment rate in South Africa, won't it? That is what is going to happen. You must understand that normally a mine worker is able to feed plus or minus uh, 10 uh, family members at once. So considering the fact that they are just going to be without jobs, that is going to be really, really a sad situation. The cost of living is, is keeping on going up. That's really, very really sad. Poverty is getting deepened, inequality. You know, that is why we are saying these big mining companies must actually be considerate. They must give us a platform to discuss this thing. It must not be a rush, rush situation. I guess they would argue that because of the decline in precious metal prices, uh, these are responsible for driving job cuts and it's out of their hands. Obviously, we have already heard that, and we, it, it is uh, what we are used to as a trade union to say they will come up with such kind of reasoning. But we are for workers, so definitely our interest here, it will be for them to actually be considerate in, uh, on the issues uh, of those workers. Luba Chalwani, thank you very much indeed from the National Union of Mine Workers. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories.
All right, let's pivot slightly. And ahead of World AIDS Day, Dr. Stavros Nikolaou, Group Senior Executive for Strategic Trade Development at Aspen Pharmacare, says it's a good time to reflect on the goals that we need to be chasing in the eradication of HIV and AIDS in Africa. He also says South Africa needs to ramp up its medicine manufacturing capacity. He spoke to us overnight, and I asked him firstly how the concurrent rise of NCDs and communicable diseases is impacting healthcare systems in Africa. The starting point for me is that COVID has more time the reality of the impact healthcare systems and public health emergencies have on economies and on the strength of healthcare systems. So it's not an issue that's any longer avoidable. It was one that we kind of put in the background previously, but I think COVID has taught us otherwise. Our continent and South Africa were particularly well-known for infectious diseases. We all understood the potential calamity of HIV, AIDS, TB, and other infectious diseases. But playing out in the background is another sinister pandemic, non-communicable diseases. The most sinister of which I believe is diabetes, obesity, cardiometabolic diseases all go hand in hand. And if left unarrested, are going to pose a significant public health and economic crisis in Africa in time to come. So my op-ed was really uh, off the back of World AIDS Day, which is on Friday. And uh, I think whilst we try and tackle these new pandemics, we shouldn't lose sight of the here and now, the existing ones. And it's really about finding a balance between managing infectious diseases on the one hand, but also a rising tide of, of more sinister pandemics they silent killers, uh, Jeremy. They don't present very often with uh, symptoms until the last moment. And then they're irreversible. So it's about balancing these two, but not losing sight of the here and now. And that makes the problem difficult because it's hard, I imagine, to find that balance, given that one side of the equation is, is hidden, as you say, is largely unknown and untested by many people. Look, healthcare systems around the world and governments around the world, including in our own country, I mean, you know, our own fiscal position is manifest for all to see, but it's no different to many other economies. And um, as you correctly point out, I'm at the public health conference, the African Public Health Conference in Lusaka, and the fragility of economies, the fiscal positions of economies is a recurrent theme. So we have to do more with less budget, inevitably. And that means we've got to really ramp up prevention for things like screening, diagnostics, medical devices become critical pieces in that puzzle. And it goes without saying, you know, the earlier you detect particularly these chronic diseases, the more manageable they become. You know, left to the last moment, patients get hospitalized. Uh, The consequences of diabetes are not pleasant. I mean, we've seen how people become amputees, become blind, because that's the consequence of an untreated diabetes left long-term. So we need to spend more wisely with less resources, here is the message. And screening public health programs are critical to that, as are security of supply of medicines. So those are some of the ingredients, I think, that will make the situation more manageable given our fiscal constraints. And that leads us on to an important issue about the manufacture of medicines or the local manufacture of medicines. What are the difficulties or the challenges or the hurdles in uh, preventing that from happening on scale? 
Jeremy, an interesting question because it's going to occupy significant focus here in Lusaka today and tomorrow. Uh, and, uh, you know, your, your listeners would have been well-versed with what happened during COVID. Uh, Africa, South Africa couldn't get vaccines. We were the back end of the queue. And it wasn't incidentally just vaccines. It was many other medicines as well. And unfortunately, lives and livelihoods are lost when you cannot supply medicines timelessly or at all. So introducing competitive, and I stress the word competitive, domestic or regional manufacturing is a critical component to managing disease, but also to managing the impact on lives and livelihoods as we saw during COVID. I think you're probably aware of many uh, people that you and I probably would have known, like Jabu Mabuza, Rob Lee. Mm. These were all prominent South Africans committed to the country, patriots, that uh, lost their lives during COVID. Now, if they were vaccinated and they did reach out to me at the time, would they still be with us in contributing to our economy? The answer is probably yes. So having local manufacturing for security of supply reasons is a critical component to managing any public healthcare system anywhere in the world. So what prevents us then from becoming competitive? I think we can be competitive. So if I look at my company, Aspen, We've proven even in those products that are sold uh, at very low prices, if you take antiretrovirals, uh, a month's supply of triple cocktail antiretrovirals these days costs the state between 60 and 70 rands. I mean, that's, you know, that's uh, two rand a day, less than a bottle of water if you were to buy a bottle of water. So even in those categories, those high-volume, high-scale products, we can be competitive. Uh, what needs to change uh, is the procurement mechanisms in our own country and on the continent. Now, there is seemingly some progress on the vaccine front. Most vaccines for Africa are bought through an institution called Gavi, which is a global vaccine alliance. And Gavi sits on the 6th of December in a board meeting. And we are hoping as Africans that the procurement mechanism is changed at that, um, at that meeting, at that board meeting. So all eyes will be on the Gavi board meeting on the 6th. And if it changes, I think that will be the first step for Gavi procuring vaccines from African companies. Dr. Stavros Nikolaou, thank you very much indeed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. It would seem there are two big summer holiday destinations currently under threat. Cape Town tourism is concerned about the ongoing spate of robberies on Table Mountain, and there is worry over the state of water quality in uh, Durban, or off their beaches at least, in spite of assurances that they are E. coli safe. Let's give you an overview of this, Rosemary Anderson, from the industry body FedHasa. A very warm welcome to you. Let's focus on Cape Town first. These recent incidents of robbery surely are affecting tourism perception. Jeremy, any robbery event, Cape Town, whichever, whichever city it is in, in, in South Africa, or any small geography, is a problem. Uh, the one thing you can say about Cape Town is they're really proactive. They've got lots on the go. I mean, tomorrow they're actually meeting all of the jams that the... Um, all the associations in tourism are meeting together to see what extra what extra they can do. Um, our minister just yesterday actually announced that the National Safety Forum, that comprises all, of all three spheres of government, it's SAPS, NPA, AXA, uh, provincial tourism entities, and also our private sector, and also various tourism product owners, meeting together um, on the 13th of December. 
the also our national department of tourism we've have budgeted 175 174.5 million for the deployment of about 2300 tourism monitors and they're going to be deployed across the country and the first batch of these tourism monitors are going to be out there within mm. the next two weeks you know to actually really capitalize on our summer tourist season so for once something has actually been done um Jeremy and another thing which is also very positive is that there's been the release of a new app called Secure Traveler app and um you can literally have it on your phone if you have any problem you can press um, one of the buttons and literally you'll be able to have help within minutes so that's another positive thing that the minister's been involved in i don't know if you also know that she's got part of linked to the secure traveler app she's um we've now got a control center at business against crime um in Sandton it's very impressive you could go and have a look and, and see it yourself in real life when a tourist local or international presses the button and just see the response but it's very impressive mm. let's move up the eastern seaboard if we can these fluctuating e coli levels off durban's beach waters um surely will have an impact on the city's reputation as a summer a summer holiday destination given the high volumes of tourists that will be arriving within weeks Absolutely Jeremy and the the really sad thing and this is not just Durban you could literally talk about any water system in South Africa and the same would be happening um DWS actually needs to totally totally take not just give directives to these municipalities but open criminal cases as for us we met with DWS last week um with regards to them polluting uh, some of the municipalities polluting some water sources in Gauteng and they mentioned that criminal cases have been opened and i think only once they start opening them against mmcs um where people are involved and they see the ramifications will something happening happen but the vast vast majority of our municipalities are polluting water sources whether they be the sea or rivers or dams Rosemary thank you very much indeed Rosemary Anderson from the industry body Fed Hasa and as we close the program today the Wednesday edition other stories on our radar parliament has acted against ANC MP and former transport minister Dipur Peters for state capture breaches at Prasa and Charlie Munger Warren Buffett's trusted confidant and long-time second in command at Berkshire Hathaway has died at the age of 99. Money web at midday we are live at noon weekdays and then up as a podcast. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb news on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.